Welcome to Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations to help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. You heard it correctly. We don't give you the one right answer. We talk about issues, sometimes we disagree, and then you decide on your own approach. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hello, everybody. And Mike Derrick a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly, and I'd just like to say good morning to all of our loyal listeners. Yes, thanks for joining us. Remember, if you have a question or something you'd like to share with us, send it to us at inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com. Today, we're talking about political tell-alls. A New York Times headline recently asked, Is everyone in politics writing a tell-all? Then it answers its own question with a resounding yes. A tell-all is a publication full of interesting, intimate, and scandalous information, revealing everything, particularly information that is normally withheld. Plenty of former secretaries of defense or secretaries of state have written books about their time as senior cabinet members, mainly to contribute to the historical record and to give context to policy decisions. Those kinds of memoirs are one thing, but we're talking about insiders or former, perhaps even fired staffers who pen unflattering, embarrassing, vindictive books about their bosses and make a lot of money doing it. I've read some of these gossipy offerings, I have to admit. The salacious part of me just loves them, but I feel like I need to take a shower after I finish them. Let me give you a few examples of what we're talking about. The Politician was a book about candidate John Edwards' scandal written by his close friend and advisor, Andrew Young. I'll take your questions now. What I saw at the Trump White House by former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham. And because he could, and rewriting history, were disparaging books about the Clintons written by Dick Morris, Bill Clinton's former campaign manager and close friend. That's just a few of many which take aim at point people in both political parties. Interestingly, there weren't many about President Obama, and the ones that there were were senior cabinet members who criticized his foreign policy decisions in a very civil manner, I have to say. Now, on one hand, I think, well, don't we as citizens deserve to know about the seamy underside of an administration, especially if what happened is illegal or unethical, or even our catch-all phrase on this show, just bad form? Isn't that useful in a democracy to know, to bring this out in the open? On the other hand, I think these folks, the people who wrote the tell-all, were in a position of trust and confidence in the sacred inner circle. And when they were no longer there, they sought revenge by spilling all the secrets they were privy to. That's betrayal. And that's just icky to me. So I'm sitting here in the throes of conflicting feelings and mixed emotions. And once again, I'm turning to Mike and Kelly for their wise counsel and clarity. And I'm going to go to you first, Mike. What advice would you give me? Well, thanks, Marna. And um, I think we're plowing some new ground this morning because I don't. we've never done this before. We've never gone after specific people and talked about specific personalities. And um, so we'll see how this goes. It's interesting to me, uh, as I listened to your introduction this morning, how our politicians and in particular, I would say presidents have become celebrities. What we're talking about here are really celebrity tell-all books, and uh, that's another whole discussion in in and of itself. You know, the role of our presidents in our society, and the role of our presidents in 
politics, but everybody wants to know every little detail. So there's certainly a tremendous demand signal out there on the part of the reading public, and you alluded to that, Marna. It's also interesting to kind of see how the greasy politicians have a lot more books written about them than those that perhaps are a little more cleaner, less uh, complicated life. So, you know, when I look back on recent presidents, you know, I think the two that jump to the top in terms of salacious books written about them are a Democrat and a Republican, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. You know, because each of those guys, uh, no matter where your politics lie, I mean, they had very, very complicated personal lives. And I'm sort of being a little uh, euphemistic there, I would think. But then you look at people like Gerald Ford, eh, not too many about him. George, he was kind of squeaky clean. Yeah. George W. Bush, nah, not too many about him. Not too many. Mm-mm. And then, uh, you know, I think the guy at the top of that list is Barack Obama, because You know, even though people may have absolutely hated his policies and his approaches, the thing is, the guy worked pretty hard. He led a very, I would say, I'm trying, I'm searching for the right adjective here. He led a very clean life, if you will, you know, and he really has in his post-presidency. I would add Jimmy Carter to that list, by the way. So That's interesting for you to list all of them. Yeah. Compare and contrast, sure. Right, right. So Clinton and Trump come to the top of the list, and that's because they hired all these brilliant young people, uh, well-connected young people when they came into office. And I haven't worked at that level, but I've been close enough to sort of see it. You know, there's a real thrill, a real power rush when you're hired by the White House. And for months, sometimes for years, that just motivates you and fuels you. And you want to do good things. And sometimes, you know, these folks are maybe a little blind to what's going on. And then at some point, You know, maybe they become a little more jaded and fatigued and they realize that, hey, you know, the most extraordinary decisions which greatly affect our country are being made by the most ordinary of people at some moments. Yes, very human. Yeah. And so they kind of look around and go, hey, wow, this is a little crazy. Then you get into the intrigue and the the backbiting and the the back hallway conversations and everything else. So again, Marna, I'm all over the map. I think it's time to throw it to Kelly because I have totally messed up the podcast this morning. I don't think so. It's a complicated issue. I mean, I think we really have to wrestle with not just the politician's humanness, the writer's humanness, but our own. Yeah, absolutely. So Kelly, Mike and I are both looking to you for clarity. Bring it on. I think this is all about money, Marna and Mike. I really do. And it's about the negative effects of greed and the desire for money. You know, it's the opposite of being loyal, being empathetic, having compassion for others. I don't think money is evil in itself, right? Money is just money. But I think that it reveals what a person is, how a person is. Are they generous? Are they loyal? Or are they taking all steps that they can to, you know, enrich themselves. Now, and are, are we talking about the staffers who write the books? Exactly. I don't, I think that it's all about the money. I think that's why they're writing the books. So I think ultimately, it's about the ethics of the almighty dollar. People often say it's not about the money. I have found it's always about the money. Wow, so, Kelly. Oh, well, these books do make a lot of money, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's... They, and at others' expense. 
Yes,、uh-huh. and, and they have a very short shelf life, but they make a lot of money while they're on the bestseller list. Absolutely, and a lot of these authors get significant money up front before they even write the book. That's you know? right. So、mm-hmm. I was looking at John Bolton, who wrote *The Room Where It Happened*. You know, he was national security advisor in Trump's administration. I think. Just over a year, so a relatively、mm-hmm. short stint,、mm-hmm. yeah. and he got a, a, a two million dollar payment up front. Wow, that is a you, lot of money. Do you guys have any sense of like, let's take that book for an example? What are, what are the what sort of proceeds are we talking about? About a dollar a book, and if it's、oh, a、really? mil- about a million sales, sales. Like I said, they have short shelf lives. Yeah,、mm-hmm. on the bestseller list for a short time, but you know if they sell. Yeah, I mean that、million. definitely sold. I mean, it was the n- number one New York Times bestseller, and you know you can't go wrong writing a book, you know, slamming Trump because、right. you've got you figure you know fifty percent of the country passionately dislikes him, even hates him, suffers from Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> so you've got all those customers out there ready、oh, yeah. to buy. And interestingly, these days, somebody's pointed out the authors don't even wait until the person is out of office. The negative books are coming while the president is still in office. Oh, yeah, and that's what happened with Bolton because the 2020 election was upon us, and so arguably it really hurt Trump because it was coming out right during the campaign and the election. And of course, Trump and his administration tried to shut it down and delay it, and、mm-hmm. took various legal actions, but. You know they did not succeed because Bolton did have to submit the book. He provided a copy to the White House, which he's required to do, and that's supposed to permit pre-publication review and approval.、Uh, they look at it to make sure that there's no classified information, and then you know what Bolton's people said is that that was delayed. Right. That you、mm-hmm. know people dragged their feet, and that Trump you know made that happen. He got involved. To try to slow it down, slow walk it to help his campaign. Interesting. But, yeah,、Was、Bolton he, went went ahead and published it anyways without getting the approval from the. Correct. He did not get the written、mm-hmm. approval, and then、oh. that resulted in various legal actions being taken.、Mm-hmm. But Bolton did prevail. That's interesting.、Know. But that had to cost Bolton some money because, and who knows what his agreement was with his publisher. But you know, maybe that was covered, and they had to cover it. But you know, he was looking at there was a criminal investigation regarding. Hey, did he share? Did he disclose classified information? There was a civil action against him to try to seize the profits of the book, and then prior to that. Uh, there was, you know, there were steps taken to try to stop the publication of the book, to try to restrain the publication. But the initial action to restrain the publication did not prevail, and then ultimately the Justice Department dropped the other two, you know, the civil matter to obtain the profits, and then the criminal probe just went away. Did he have anything in there that violated national security? I don't think he did because it was published. But it was interesting in the restraining action. The judge did express concern, but allowed the publication to go forward. So, Kelly, I'm getting from you that you disagree with the tell-all book genre. I do, but it's legal. Yeah, and it's fine. It's permitted. You know, but it's bad a, form. You think it's bad form? I do think it's bad form, and I think、yeah. it's based on greed. I don't think people would take the time to write these books out of spite. I think that they're or out of oh oh、will. I do I think it's spite and greed. No, I don't think it's such an effort. I think it's greed. 
I don't think it's spite. And I don't think it's, oh, I, we just want to let the world needs to know about this. These tell-alls are so personal. They just rip people. They do. They're very personal. You know, I, I think the other angle here, too, is that some of them are efforts on the part of the writer to set themselves up for the next step, to develop a following, to develop a political personality or constituency out there, because they've had their moment in the sun at the highest levels of government in the halls of power. And, you know, when you lose that, it's kind of like there's a little bit of a withdrawal. And a lot of these folks spend the rest of their lives trying to find that next gig. These people who are totally involved in our political culture and, and career. So just another yeah. angle on that. Yeah. Or in Dick Morris's case, you just cross to the other party and start working <laughs> yeah. for them. He was a Democrat. Now he's a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting. And also, to what you're saying, Mike, is creating your own platform as aren't I honest? Right. Look mm -hmm. what I'm bringing to light. Yeah. Yep. So Kelly said it was all about the money and it's all about greed. And I think many of the people who write these books, especially the younger staffers, they go through a personal transition because they come into their appointed position full of idealism and full of zeal and full of admiration and they're blown away by the power and the influence that suddenly they enjoy. And then as they get into it more, I think they undergo a personal transformation. If they leave on bad terms, if they get fired, especially if it's a publicly humiliating thing, which is often the case, they have, an, they have a chip on their shoulder. They have an ax to grind. So it's the money, but there's other elements. But people go through a, a transformation when they're involved in politics, you know, and I speak from personal experience in that regard, having run for Congress. Politics is a contact sport, and at the end of the game, everybody's dirty. At least that was my experience, and I think just about every politician would agree with me if you could get them to speak frankly about that. Kelly, what you said a moment ago is very illuminating. You talked about greed and money, and I think that applies in all aspects of our political culture and our political system. And uh, if you think you're getting into it for idealism and good government and the right thing to do, at some point you realize that, hey, wait a second, it's really about the money. Because if I can buy advertising, if I can sway minds, if I can capture eyeballs on a screen, then that's what's going to either get me in power or keep me in power. And so back to our staffers who come out of the White House, they're looking for both money and they're looking for fame or notoriety or reputation. Because like Kelly said a second ago, they want to get hired by the next administration if they can. If they play their book right, they may have a higher profile. It sounds kind of like these staffers are idealistic at first. It's like that intoxicating feeling when you're in love with somebody, and then, then there's a letdown, and things take a dark turn after that. Yeah. And then they write terrible books, and they're terrible mm -hmm. to each other. <laughs> it's, like well, a, I think, it's like a romance gone wrong. Yeah, and it happens very slowly over time. You know, and I think the example of the person who runs for office with the absolute best intentions, somehow along the way, I feel often, and I don't want to be unfair because there are some really good folks in office and serving in the administration, but somewhere along the way, frequently they lose themselves or they just 
come to the realization, if I want to continue doing this, I've got to change what I'm thinking. And then instead of worrying about your district or your state, you're, you don't want to like really speak up. You, your whip or your leader tells you, hey, you've got to get in line, even though it's really not best for your, you know, for your constituents. And before you know it, in no time, you're touting the party line. And that protects you because then the national committee is going to see that money comes your way and they're going to make sure that nobody runs against you in the primary. And, you know, you get this protection and this support and it's just yeah. a nasty is it, is, business. Is it sort of like the mafia on a big scale? Yeah, <laughs> man, this makes me think in our in our warm up this morning, Marnie, you were talking about the Sopranos and, you know, how much different is uh, modern politics from <laughs> the world of organized crime right Uh, i'll let our i'll let our listeners chew on that and and mike you you've talked to me about (laughs) this i don't know how people would get into politics these days like you said everybody gets dirty there's no skin thick enough yeah right for that well, I think there are people of character out there, though. But the thing about it is that their names don't go down in history. You know, I know several former members of Congress and members of the administration who they weren't in positions where their books would sell any money. So, you know, they probably didn't have that financial motivation to go out and write a book. But, you know, they got to a certain point and they looked at themselves and they looked at what they're doing and they just said, this isn't for me. I can't continue this. I'm compromising who I really am. I have a close friend who served in the Trump administration at the highest levels, and and he didn't last very long because that was a very turbulent place, working for a very turbulent guy. When he got out, he was literally begged by publishers to write a tell-all book, and he didn't. He wrote a substantive, uh, meaningful, thoughtful book on the area of policy that he was responsible for. And he probably didn't sell a lot of Probably books. sold five yeah. copies. Yeah. On but, the other hand, Michael Cohen, who is the attorney for Trump, has recently written a book called Disloyal. Yeah. And he's probably going to make a lot of money. Yeah, but, it. like, he's an idiot. you know he's just somebody who he's a perfect example of he was trump's stooge for years and years and years making a fortune off him doing stuff he knew was wrong for a really long time and then you know he decides to turn simply because it's in his best interest and he gets cut, cut a deal he can't refuse and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm a great guy. Is he, and, is he redeemed? Yeah, and all the <laughs> politicians are like, thank you, thank you. And he's like this victim. I mean, well, he also on. went to federal prison, right, Kelly? I know, but for a couple months. Yeah, for yeah well, head? he got out because of COVID. You know, they, <laughs> they said, all right, Michael Cohen, you're not quite as bad as everybody else here, and we're trying to reduce population numbers because of COVID. You go home. And by the so. way, you know, I've been to those federal prisons. These guys that are, are white-collar criminals, it is, it is like a little bit of a vacation. I mean, I'm, I'm overstating it, but it's not bad at all. Is it a good place to write books, Kelly? Uh, you could. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it, you know, it, they're not locked in, you know, there's a lot of freedom to walk around and do mm-hmm. things and it is not bad. These are nonviolent right. criminals? Yeah, because there are different levels of federal prisons. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so they go to the least restrictive and there's certain locations. It's just not bad at all. It's not like your local county jail. It's not at all like anything in, in the state system. 
it's pretty nice. I mm-hmm. mean, relatively speaking, even like poor Martha Stewart, they don't really have those kinds of prisons for women. Um, <laughs> so, you know, she kind of had to go to a, a relatively difficult place. Oh, she described it as a, a women's college campus from the 40s. <laughs> well, that oh, might really? be true. Wow. But okay. yeah. I mean, which isn't horrible. But I mean, it's not like what the guys get, because there's just a lot more white you know, uh, white-collar criminals. What are you guys trying to say here? (laughs) I'm just saying Michael Cohen is like, (laughs) you know, come on. He's a victim, and he's got all this. So my my thing about Michael Cohen is if things were so bad in the administration or for the president he was serving, why didn't he resign? He stayed right in there. It's all about the money. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a decades-long pattern for Michael Cohen. I think his moral compass is stuck. On well, some think, direction other yeah, his, than north. His book um, implicates himself, too, in my well, opinion. Well, if you look at his behavior, it is always incentivized by where the almighty dollar is. That's what it's about. That's why he did all the stuff he did for Trump. That's why he did it. He had to save his skin, which ultimately is about the money, because the sooner he can get out and, you know, then he writes a book all about the money. When I read these books, and I always get them from the library, I don't buy them. <laughs> Am I feeding into that lascivious, the worst part of human nature? Am I a bad person for reading these? Well, Marna, you know, you get them from the library, so <laughs> not... I, I don't want to know, enrich them. <laughs> I don't know. This, we, we talk about exercising our ethical muscles on this podcast, Marna, and I'm going to throw it right back at you. I mean... <laughs> yeah, you no, usually I, do. <laughs> I don't know. I think... Certainly, there's something to be learned from many of these. Some are not as bad as others. I'm with Kelly, you know, even though I may have not sounded like it. I mean, it is all about the money. You know, we just, in New York State, we just came out of a most, uh, let's just call it a difficult governorship under Andrew Cuomo. Not necessarily your nicest guy in the world. Had a lot of qualities, which if he had been president, I'm sure there would be a raft of people who were writing books about him. But you know, the money isn't there. The audience isn't big enough. Andrew Cuomo is, yeah, you know, he's he was notorious for a while, but he's becoming more and more of a footnote. And so. I think he was ordered by a court to return a lot of the proceeds from his memoir, wasn't he? Right, right. Turn them yeah, over? there was that whole thing, which, mm-hmm. yeah, he seems to have used his professional staff to write a personal yeah. book. The disgraced ex-governor. Yeah. Something else that popped in my mind while you guys were talking is Trump was like our first social media president, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like social media and people living on and through social media have really thrown gasoline on the fire of tell-all books. You're absolutely right. If you live in that world, you know, that world can be greatly rewarding, both monetarily and in terms of your profile, but it also can be it can be horribly damaging, too, and it can turn on a dime. Yeah, it's difficult. I don't think you're a bad person if you want to read those books. <laughs> it's fine. If, <laughs> Thanks, if, Kelly. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, there's so many, there's so much going on in this world. I I just uh, seem silly to judge somebody right. over that. I mean, That's what not I would, all I read, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh. what I would say is, and I... I try to say this to my kids. I'm not sure I do, though, is at least I try to say it to myself is you want to expose yourself to positive things that, you know, lift you up or educate you or inform. And because ultimately, that's what drives 
who you are, how you feel, all those important things. So I like to try to keep it positive. And I Mm -hmm. don't like to Mm -hmm. reward people that engage in behavior that is inconsistent with my values. Right. I hear you, Kelly. You've hit upon a great point. You know, and you can say that about books. You can say that about movies. You can say that about social media. If you consume a lot of really difficult, damaging stuff... At some point, it really begins to change the way in which you think and view the world, you know, especially when people are young, because our children, our young people are just sponges, you know, and they they're shaping their views of the world as they grow up. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm not a psychologist, mm-hmm. <laughs> but do you, do you but play you one on pass, TV? I, yes, you but I did stay at a holiday in last night. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, but what I want to say is I think there's some research and we'd have to look at it like on the brain and neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things. And I think for young people that consistently expose themselves to, you know, to social media and those kinds of things, it can result in these changes to the brain. Luckily, the brain's super resilient. So probably that can be reversed. But I think some things when you're young, if they are set in place, they may not be able to be changed. And that's where you have Mm -hmm. to be so careful with social media and, you know, all this technology and what it does to the young brain. I'm totally on board, Kelly. Yeah, I would say I see at the park parents who are on their phones when they're with their children, and they're basically ignoring their children while they post on social media or what have you. And I think it's very sad because I see their kids' faces. They don't see them. And those kids know they're being ignored. They're growing up being ignored. It breaks my heart. We've taken some dramatic turns here. Listeners, I hope you're still with us. Speaking of dark um, turns. We're solving Um, all the problems in the world today. (laughs) I know. So, Kelly, I had a legal question for you. There is a book... I'll just use this one for an example called Melania and Me, The Rise and Fall of My 15-Year Friendship with the First Lady. She was um, a staffer on uh, the First Lady's staff and then made a falling out and then she wrote a tell-all book. So my question is about, don't these people have to sign non-disclosure agreements and wouldn't this be a violation of a non-disclosure agreement? And what what happens if you violate a non-disclosure agreement? I don't know if she signed a non-disclosure agreement. I would assume she she did. did. Okay. So there are different kinds of non-disclosure agreements. For the government, there's a, a standard form. I think it's like a standard form 312 or something. I was I was looking at this. And generally, enforcement is limited to sharing classified information. So that form that most government employees sign is, is limited to, you know, protecting our government and ultimately our citizens from the exposure of classified information. When you go much beyond that, that standard form and, you know, its terms and conditions become difficult to enforce because of the First Amendment. And there are whistleblower protections, uh, but I'm assuming this is more of a First Amendment issue. Now, I do think the Trump administration did try to have much more robust provisions in their non-disclosure agreements. There were some, you know, there were articles, there was some evidence that they were presenting much more favorable towards the administration non-disclosure agreements. But I don't I don't know. And certainly Melania or, or Mrs. Trump could have taken action, could have taken her to court and tried to get a restraining order based on a violation of and presented the non-disclosure agreement based on a violation of such agreement. But it doesn't appear she did that. 
so I wonder maybe this employee just signed the typical, you know, federal standard form. And so, you know, there really wasn't a legal leg to stand on. Or if she did sign, you know, a more robust confidentiality agreement, which is just another term for a non-disclosure agreement or an NDA, you know, maybe Mrs. Trump decided not to pursue it. So like corporations, perhaps, or celebrities might have their employees sign a more robust confidentiality statement? Right. And, you know, it typically, like, identifies the parties. You know, it has defined terms. The biggest defined term is what is confidential information. Mm -hmm. You know, it defines, like, hey, this is, you know, confidential information is the following. So that it's very clear we've, we've defined what it is uh, so that you understand as you execute it that, I am not to share. This is what I'm not allowed to share. And then it goes through the obligations, which generally gets into, hey, what happens if this protected information becomes public? What happens if it's shared? And then there's a term or a time frame that it applies, which often can be fairly lengthy. The agreement itself may have a two-year term, but you may be obligated to not share any confidential information that you learn during that time period for an additional five years or seven years or whatever it is. And with corporations, typically corporations try to uh, mark information as confidential or proprietary. And then, you know, we usually have language that requires the return or the destruction of such information when the term or the relationship has ended. And you always have exclusions, things that aren't considered confidential information. And those may be things that the public's already aware of or the other party mm-hmm. already knows of mm-hmm. or it's in the public domain or or the other party learned of it not through this special relationship, but through a third party or they independently developed it. And this gets into more of, you know, kind of IP and Mm -hmm. those kinds of issues when you're talking about a corporation that might be working on technology or, you know, devices or, you know, like a phone or those kinds of things. But NDAs are very common in the business world, especially when it comes to developing products and and those, you know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. and then, and, but I was wondering if information that you learned having a friendship or a personal relationship within an administration or a corporation is that protected or restricted under an NDA? No, I don't believe so. It's not so a like, friendship, certainly. The thing that I find offensive in this title is what her name is Win- Stephanie Winston Wolkoff is the rise and fall of my fifteen-year friendship with the first lady. So. She sold out a friendship. That's very offensive to me. Yeah, and who knows if she was even a friend. She could just mm-hmm. be saying that to sell books. Like, right. hey, I want to make it clear, you know, this, is, this isn't just some business relationship where I was her right-hand person in the White House. It's so much more re- potential readers. Come, come, <laughs> come on and read this, and you're going to get yeah. really the insights. I will it. not be reading that book, that's for I, sure. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if Mrs. Trump was like, yeah, I knew her for 15 years, but I hardly knew her. Funny anecdote about this is the First Lady's spokeswoman, Stephanie Grisham, said of Walcott, this book is full of mistruths and paranoia and clearly based on some imagined need for revenge. Interestingly, a few years later, the person who said this, Stephanie Grisham, wrote her own tell-all book. That's what I thought uh, when you said uh, her name. The lore I was of thinking, money. I yes, was thinking well, didn't she write What did she write? I'll take your questions now. She yeah, was the White right. House press secretary. The press secretary who never held a press conference. Yeah, 
I'll take your questions now. What I saw at the Trump White House. So maybe the lure of the almighty dollar was too much for her. Yeah, I mean, I do think I don't want to act like I'm sympathetic to Trump because he's kind of a mean guy. But I do think that these Trump people, publishers and folks in that industry went after them hard to get them to write books because they all dislike Trump so much. Whereas Obama was like a saint and nobody wanted to say anything bad about him. So my guess is if somebody did want to you know, write a book, they might have a hard time finding a publisher. And there probably wasn't that much in the way of salacious detail that came out of the Obama administration, whereas there certainly was in the Trump administration. But maybe it has to do, too, with the politics of it. That's what I worry about, is that Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem Mm even-handed. And you see that, and I'm getting a little off-topic, journalism is supposed to be the fourth estate, and we really need this aggressive and vibrant press. And, you know, we certainly had it with Trump. I mean, they were constantly questioning him. You want the same thing when people that they like are in office, too. You know, like, obviously, Obama's a very likable guy. President Biden is a very likable guy. You, You want people to also really dig into the policies and things that happened or what's going on and publish those stories. Let us find out about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the challenge there, Kelly, is that when you write something about a, let's just call them a serious president, you know, one who takes the job very carefully with you know, and is very assiduous about it. At that point, what you what those journalists have to do is they've got to dive deep into policy. And who wants to read policy? It's just that, not as exciting as you that's know, not very salacious, right? Yeah, and, but I mean, and so it's a tough sell for a journalist to dive into the difference between you know one point seven billion on the Build Back Better legislation versus two point three billion on the Build Back Better legislation. I know what you're saying, but some of mm-hmm. the things like you know Obama drew the red line with Syria as far as chemical weapons and then it happened and there was no red line and you know yeah they Mm -hmm. published it like once and then they got over it yeah Mm -hmm. same thing with Crimea like Putin went into Crimea and then they published it but then they were like oh well and they let it go and that is what his senior staffers Gates Clinton and Kerry those were the complaints they had about Obama those specific things Mm -hmm. foreign policy leadership decisions it wasn't salacious at all yeah I mean but you want a real study of it and you want it to be brought up Wow, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Anything else either one of you want to add about tell-all books? The unifying thought in this morning's discussion has been Kelly's thesis that it's all about the money. I mean, there's some other things that come into play, certainly, but... I think addictiveness is part of it, too. Yeah, like so much of our modern world, it's driven by financial interests. Well, I will certainly rethink my penchant for reading these books. There's so many I'll reach for a classic book instead. (laughs) Yeah, there's positive, uplifting stories. They're out there. Maybe those are the best ones to read. Maybe we should appeal to our listeners to um, help Marna find positive, uplifting books. Mike, Listeners, I read, can you help us here? I you read know? positive, uplifting books. <laughs> I do. I just reached for uh, The Sun Ultra Rises. I'm not sure it's positive, uplifting, but it is a classic. All right, listeners, I've, this well, is I've, a call for help. Okay? I've got a stack of books on my nightstand. You know me. I read <laughs> I all I'm, the time. I'm messing with you, Mark. I'm messing with you. <laughs> but still, there is that part of me that can't resist. Well, you know, there's a whole genre of of magazines as you go through the checkout aisle in the grocery store that 
tabloids. Know, I mean, they have figured it out, right? Appealing to our lesser yeah. natures. It's, yeah. it's celebrity culture, folks. Mm -hmm. it's, our politicians are celebrities. At least our presidents are celebrities. And I would and, argue uh, that social media has raised the stakes exponentially, too, Yeah. on yeah. celebrity. Let us know what you think. Keep the conversation going. Leave us an email, inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com or a voicemail at our website, ethicsandetiquette.com. Check out our Instagram at ethicsetiquette. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd appreciate it if you took time to leave a positive review while you're there. And thank you to all of you who keep sharing ethics and etiquette with your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Please join us again. New episodes are posted the first and third Wednesdays of every month, for the most part. See you then.